Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras, is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I'm Elaine miller Karras, your host. And I'm very excited today. We are talking about The Art of Talking to Children, um, a book that my um, guest recently published her name is Rebecca Rowland, and I'm going to give you a longer um, uh, introduction to her and all her accomplishments. But before I do that, I think this is a really important time to talk with our children and learn different ways and maybe more effective ways to talk to our children because there is so much going on in the world. I think we could certainly say with COVID that um, after over two years, there's been a lot of disconnection. There's been lots of trauma, grief that have pervaded not only our children's lives, but adult lives. And we know that adults are the tuning fork for their children. So we're all being impacted. So I think that um, what um, Rebecca Rowland shares with us that um, we can learn ways to talk with children in ways that can bring out the things that they're concerned about and ways that we can have meaningful conversations with, with them. And obviously that parents, teachers, um, and children's caregivers may be grappling with questions about how to talk to children right now about war, about what's, you know, just the last week in our, our media about gun violence, or just even about grief and sadness and also fear. So our show today will introduce listeners to the power of back and forth conversations with children as a way of promoting resilience and healing for both children and adults. Dr. Roland, who is also, I think, you get credibility on this, um, Rebecca, that you're a mother of two children. Yes. yes. <laughs> we'll offer listeners a toolbox of fun, playful, and actionable strategies and ideas to en- enhance their relationships with children. And also, and you know that you've, if you've been listening to this show, we love neuroscience, and she's going to discuss the neuroscience behind these strategies. The session will support listeners in understanding just how powerful and urgent it is to have these meaningful conversations with children. Well, and Rebecca has quite a pedigree. She's a lecturer at Harvard Graduate School of Education. She serves on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. She is also an oral and written language specialist in neurology department of Boston's Children's Hospital. And she's a nationally certified speech language pathologist. She has worked clinically with populations ranging from early childhood through high school, and she's provided teacher professional development. She has her doctorate from Harvard Graduate School of Education, an MS in speech language pathology from MGH Institute of Health Professions, an MA in English from Boston University, and a BA in English from Yale. Phew, that was a lot <laughs> get through, Rebecca. That's a lot of education, yes. <laughs> you definitely had a lot of education. So, so welcome to the show. We're so grateful that you're here today. And I'm just going to ask you kind of a question is that, is there anything on your mind right now before we start with some of the formal questions that we prepared together? Um, I mean, I would say that I do think just now, especially every day, obviously we read about news every day. I think things are really triggering for a lot of adults. Um, And it's so hard to know how do we talk to children about these things how much of our own emotions, our own 
information do we bring to children? How much do we keep from them? And so I think this is just such an important time. And I think I feel this more and more every day in the parents I talk to and even in my own family. Well, and I'm, as you say that too, I'm just thinking about some of the gun violence and, you know, sadly, the children who've lost their lives and all the community and family members that have impacted is that, you know, how much do we say? Are there different things that we say at different developmental periods of our children? I was sharing with you that my my daughter, who we have, I have a five-year-old grandchild, and my daughter was worried that she would overhear kids at school talking. So she felt she had to say something to her and yet didn't want to alarm her to be afraid of going to school. And exactly. so she actually decided to use the term mean people sometimes come mm-hmm. and what to do if you see a mean person. Mm-hmm. So, I yes. mean, I imagine that you might have some ideas about that, but I thought maybe I could start with with that because that may be something um, that many people are grappling with is how do we talk about it? And sometimes it's hard to keep our children from the media that's so present in our lives if we just even turn on the television for a second. Exactly. And I do think that I love uh, what your daughter said she's doing because it is all about finding that balance. So how do we tell them sort of what we think they might need to know at this time, especially based on what they've been hearing? What are they coming to us with? You know, do they come to us with fears? They already are they overhearing something and knowing that, you know, it's better a lot of times if they can have that conversation first with us rather than just we wait for something to be overheard for some kind of information which may be distorted um, from their peers. So I think to realize that that can start at home as sort of a framing before they go out in the world can be so important. Oh my gosh, I'm really glad that you said that because I think that, you know, in my experience with kids is they sometimes hear that and they they craft their own meanings about it and of, often can have distorted perceptions about what they've heard. And I think with what you're talking about, if the parent talks about it first, the parent can give their framework to the child that I think then can help ally some of their fears that they may have. Do you think that is, is a, yeah, true? Exactly. I think that that's so important so that they can almost have a filter rather than just going through and, you know, they pick something up here and something else there and they want to make sense of it. So they may make a really distorted sense of it if they have nothing that's grounding them. So I think we can think about our conversations as really grounding. Well, first of all, I want to say, and I'm going to probably say it many times in the show, I just love the name of your book, The Art of Talking with Children. And it was just published in March. Is that correct? Do I have that right? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, I was very impressed because you've already told me that it's being published in many languages. So, yes, yes. <laughs> it just came out in India and English, and it's being translated in Chinese, Spanish, uh, Vietnamese, lots of other languages as well. So. So right. I, want, I want our listeners to know that because if you have a family member that does not speak English to know that's available in many languages. And if you're concerned about, let's say, a family member and how they speak to their children, <laughs> buy the book and say, oh, you might want to you might want to read this book. I just heard this person on on uh, Resiliency Within on Voice America. So, yeah. you know, I, I'm really curious um, Rebecca, about can you tell us a little bit about your journey in focusing on the art of speaking with children? Yes, definitely. So it's interesting because I've always been really interested in language. I started out actually in high school as a poet. So I really love writing poetry and have been publishing poetry and teaching it uh, much of my life, actually. Um, You have to send me some of your poetry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I have a poetry book, actually. I published my first book. It was 10 years ago. So I started out that way. And I actually just became fascinated, not just with language and writing, but then just even with the language people are speaking every day. So I started really paying attention to how people were talking. And I realized it was just really fascinating to me. So I had a a 
writing teacher actually give an exercise to say, just sit in a cafe and write down what people are actually saying. Um, and I was like, I don't need to do that. I know what people generally say. Um, but actually, when I did the exercise, I was fascinated because people did not at all say what I thought they would say um, and in the ways I had expected them to say it. Uh, and I encourage anyone who's <laughs> listening to actually try that because it is a really interesting and almost humbling experience to actually hear the ways people interact with each other through language. Um, well, that is so fascinating. As you're saying, I'm going, oh, well, what if you went to different neighborhoods? <laughs> oh, for sure. Different <laughs> languages that are spoken. So, you know, my mother was from El Salvador. So she would sometimes, you know, bring in English and Spanish words together. Mm-hmm. I guess they call it Spanglish, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I imagine that happens with many, many different languages. Definitely. Yes. It's so fascinating. And even what I think is even cooler is that to notice the effect that even having you or having a listener, how that might change the conversation as well. Um, so I think when you actually come and sit down, like how, whether you're closer, if somebody's going to change what they were saying, lower their voices, you know, just how the effect of having an observer also changes the conversation, which I think was really interesting. Well, you know, I'm, I'm often interested in why people became passionate about this work. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly sounds like you had some wonderful instructors that gave you some really yes. interesting assignments, but um, I'm just, what issues did you notice in society that prompted, uh, prompted you to be passionate about this work? Yeah, so definitely as I became a teacher, I became really interested in helping children who are having trouble speaking. So I actually realized the power of language, not just as a mode of expression, but really as a form of authenticity. So actually allowing children to have their voices heard, to allow adults to have their voices heard through parenting, through communicating with children. And I realized there were so many obstacles to this kind of authentic communication. It was just felt as if there was sort of a perfect storm of factors. I mean, everything from you know, technology, constant news media, just busy schedules, and even the emphasis on kind of everyone having activities a lot of the time, I realized people often were having really logistical conversations. And I found myself doing this in my own life, kind of focusing conversations around, well, let's get here, let's get your gym clothes, let's get this. But then at the end of the day, it didn't feel as though we had made the time or really had been thoughtful about having some more meaningful conversations. Um, well, I, yeah, and I'm from a different generation, completely, <laughs> but I remember the importance of the, the family dinner hour mm-hmm. and that we were there and that's when we would process our day. But now I often see, even in my own family, that everybody's on a device. I mean, we actually try to get rid of the devices, although mm-hmm. sometimes it's not easy and that's not the kids, that's the adults. Yes, yes. And so that also then people are never like paying attention Mm-hmm. to exactly. the individuals in their homes. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and there's actually, it's funny because I've read articles about this and they call it kind of alone together where we're all, yeah. we're all sitting together, but we're really not with We're not other. connecting. We're yeah. not connecting. So, well, let me ask you another question. You've talked about how now there are perfect storms of, of factors leading children and adults to feel disconnected and in need of meaningful conversations. Can you tell more about that? I guess we just touched upon it. Um, would you like to say more about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think especially a lot of parents that I've heard come to me and say, you know, my child just seems shut down or it's like my child disappears to their room. They come for dinner and then they leave to their room again, you know, or things like that. And there's just this urge from the parent side to connect more with the child. But what's funny is that I often see kids and I realize the urge is also there with the child. So it's so funny because we think, oh, you know, we're both wanting to connect But there's just this difficulty in terms of, well, how do we make this happen? And that's really where I saw my work as helping, especially just kind of how do we reconnect 
when we both want to, or when, you know, both children and adults want to, but it can be really hard to know how. Well, it's so interesting. I was just thinking about when my, you know, my kids are in their, you know, late thirties now. Right. And so I would just remember my son, because when he was a teenager, I'd say, well, how was school? Fine. What did you do today? Nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, any interesting subjects? No. I mean, that was a conversation, except we were fortunate enough to have a hot tub. Mm. Hey, hey, mom, do you want to go in the hot tub with me? I said, sure. Oh my gosh, she became the most talkative person on earth. <laughs> but it wasn't outside of the, yeah. there's something about that that made it, I don't know. I, mean, I would yeah. love your, your, your interpretation. Of yes, that. yes, that's great. That's so funny. And I think uh, that goes to what I've seen with a lot of families, which is just that if we can develop these kind of rituals, which usually involve something kind of meditative or relaxing or quiet or calming, that can be one place where things just open up. And it's almost as if it's a ritual that kids know and they, they're comfortable with and they associate it with opening up. So it becomes this thing they look forward to. I have the same thing in my family. My, I take my daughter for walks like, to the cafe because she likes to go. I get a tea and she gets something to eat or something. And she's like, let's go for our little walk. You know, and she knows that at that point, we're going to have time to actually. And the thing about that is, too, is that I can remember sometimes going, oh, I've got so much to do. But I just said, no, I got to do it because maybe mm-hmm. he wants to talk to me about something. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. I think that's the thing here in a busy life. You go, oh my God, I don't have time to go for the walk or the hot tub exactly. or whatever it might be. So, you know, let me ask you another question. So, what do you see as the connection between the back and forth conversation and resilience for both adults and children? Yeah. So I think um, what's so important is just this idea of being responsive. So we often think about maybe resiliency as kind of a really big topic of like, oh, well, we want this as an outcome. But what we don't always see is how it develops out of these very small moments and very small interactions that accumulate over time. So it's not just that obviously we're going to have resiliency and, you know, this one activity or those things are important, but that even just taking the time to sit and really understand what a child is saying from moment to moment and having them understand what you're really trying to say is really key for developing that resiliency in the long term. Um, well, you know, this, this, I mean, I have, have a question for you. I think it might be important to find out what is your definition of resiliency? Because mm-hmm. I've, I've interviewed a number of people and lots of people have different, um, you know, yes, yes. of the words. So can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I, I do see there's a range of definitions as well. So I think the standard one that I'm used to using is sort of the ability to bounce back from difficult experiences, the ability to see and recognize one's strengths and to really have a strengths-based approach to one's life and to hardships. Um, so the ability to kind of get through and really think through um, relying on one's strengths um, and also the ability to ground oneself and feel grounded in one's environment, in one's selfhood, um, even through challenging or destabilizing experiences. So all of that for me is kind of the constellation. And I keep adding to it too. Like, (laughs) it doesn't mean that we don't talk about suffering, but (laughs) what else is true? And that is the strength base, right? It's like, what else are your strengths? But so, and also with these conversations, I'm also, you know, noting that, you know, sometimes we want to talk to our children. They don't want to talk to us. Mm -hmm. Are there strategies that you've learned on how to kind of increase the uh, likelihood that they might want to come to us when we're going, give me something, you know, it's like, yes, yes. oh, yes, you know. Yes, there are a couple. So one thing is I would really focus on is actually looking at the time, um, not time of day necessarily, although that's part of it, um, but really not always feeling as if we need to have this conversation now. 
So maybe it isn't the right time. Um, and feeling as if we can pull back and saying, okay, well, maybe we'll wait until a time where it feels more relaxed, where my child is more in the mood to talk. So not sometimes we get kind of in a panic about, well, I want to have this conversation now, and it doesn't always have to happen now. Um, the second thing I would really emphasize is just modeling. So even if kids don't want to talk, I often find that by talking through my day, even in things that I don't think are incredibly interesting, um, and that just my children like to listen, it seems they like to listen, and then at some point they interrupt me and they want to have their side of the conversation. Uh, so <laughs> That's really nice. Now, there's another question that I want to ask you, and that is about texting. Now, for, I, for example, I have one of my children and that my child would rather text me than talk to me. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and that's an older child, but we have, we have great conversations mm-hmm. and probably maybe better conversations when we're talking to another. Mm-hmm. So is what, what is your comment about that? And how early is, is that okay? Or should we try not to do that? I mean, I just think like we have to talk about technology for talking. Yes, about- definitely. And it's funny that you said that because I was just going back in the car from a long car trip and my, my daughter texted me, I want a bunny in the car. <laughs> And I said, I hear you. I hear you texting me. You want a bunny. We talked about that. <laughs> and it was really Sometimes it's easier to say it on the text. Than <laughs> exactly. Than <laughs> like, I know you want a bunny, but yeah. So, um, but actually, yeah. So I, I would say that, um, that for me, um, technology is a great part of our relationship if it's a part and an adjunct to a real life relationship. So in that example, I think it was funny because it was, you know, obviously we're both in the car together. She knows that she can say this and it's another way of communicating. So for me, I'm really all about the importance of communicating whatever way that happens. And if that happens sometimes in a way that's more flowing in a text-based fashion, I don't have a problem with it. As long as it's not, you know, then I don't talk to my child, you know. That's your only texting. Uh, That's your only texting. (laughs) Well, because, you know, I'm wondering too, knowing, you know, your background as speech pathologist and um, in terms of that social engagement piece between two people actually being live together, even on Zoom, I mean, I think we can have meaningful conversations, obviously, but there seems to be something to me that I worry about losing that person-to-person connection because there's so much more to conversation mm-hmm. than the words. Oh, yes. And it's funny that you mentioned that because in my book, I talk about what's called embodied face-to-face conversation. Um, yeah, which is not my term, actually. So yeah, I, I reference all of that. But um, it, I do think it's so critical. So I think that is really key. And that that's why I emphasize in some ways texting as an adjunct, because I think that it's almost like vitamins. If you think about vitamins as a supplement to an otherwise healthy diet, I think it can be fine. But if you're taking vitamins and not, not really anything eating actual else, right. good food, that's not going to be very good for your body. So that's the way I sort of think about texting and technology is that if it's adding to something that's already robust in terms of our in-person conversation, I think it can be helpful. But in, if it's sort of taking the place of, you know, what I do think is sort of the meat and potatoes of our relationships, because we can actually, we can see facial expressions. You can see gestures, you can be more, you know, you can think about repairing conversations in different ways um, in person. So, well, I, you know, I just had the experience. I've been pretty much staying at home for two years and I went on my first trip. I went to Northern Ireland last week and, and it was so delightful to be in person with people. I, I just, I miss it. And I didn't realize how much I missed it until I didn't have it. And I imagine that children too, that are, you know, have gone back to school in person, that that's a different experience for them than being like we're talking right now. Cause there's so many nuances of 
how we communicate that I think as much as I think Zoom is a wonderful way to communicate, for example, or being on the air like we are right now with Voice America, there's so many other parts to it. So I don't know if you want to comment on that. Definitely. And I do think I see it all the time now with kids who are back in person is that there, there are so many delights for them. I think they're so excited, many of them. There are also a lot of anxiety and a lot of missed chances that we need to help them catch up on. I mean, I've seen so many kids who almost, even the five-year-olds, like they, you know, my son who's five hadn't really had a play date for as long as he could remember. Um, and so when getting back, he's like, what is this thing we call a play date? You know, what am I going to do on this play date? You know, and, uh, and you know, his sister who's 10 was like, this is ridiculous. What do you <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but we think about, we, you don't always think that young kids, they haven't even had the social experience if no. they've been in the COVID period. So, no, I, yeah. yeah. My gra- I'm just laughing because my granddaughter, I would take her for walks and she would see a child walking with a parent across the street and she'd go hi my name is madison and i just felt so sorrowful because oh my goodness couldn't get close to them but yeah yeah you know, she hungered for those kinds of connections. So I'm glad to hear those are still very important. Yes, yes. Oh, yes. I think it's critical. Yeah. I mean, my son would call, we had construction outside our house for, you know, three months or something. And he would go and say, these are my friends, his the construction workers, because they were hanging outside our house. Yeah. And so you do think kids are longing for friendships and they'll make friends even if they're not real friends. So we we had a worker come to our house. It was the same thing. That worker came on such a regular basis. That was her only friend. Oh, wow. And it was so, and he was always so sweet to her. So that was nice. But you know, this kind of leads me into the next question, which is, um, you talk in your book about rich talk as a way to jumpstart meaningful conversations. Could you talk a little bit more about what that is? Yes, definitely. So this is the framework that I put in the book, and it's really intended to help people see. Well, sort of how can you have these meaningful conversations and how can it be not a huge investment of time or energy, but just something you can do every day. Um, And there's the ABCs of rich talk, which I lay out in the book. And I'll just talk about them briefly if that's I would love to hear about the ABCs because I think it's important for us to know what those are. Yes. Sure. Yeah. So the A is um, stands for adaptive, meaning that you're really going with the flow of your child, um, both in the moment. So in terms of their mood, you know, are they in a talkative mood? Are they in more of a quiet or shut down mood? You're kind of matching that as well as longer term. So meaning thinking about temperament, for example, you know, are they more active in the morning or are they more um, talkative after they've played basketball, say something like that. So you're really starting to grow with them in terms of where, what do they need conversationally? Um, B stands for back and forth. So oftentimes I talk about, we talk at kids sometimes about thinking about it or even to them, but not necessarily with them. Um, And there's a lot of research, especially from MIT in the last couple of years that has really found the importance of back and forth talk, meaning that the child says something, the adult says something, child says something back, et cetera. So there's this kind of ping ponging effect where you really are getting engagement, both from the child and from the parent. And that is just so powerful in building children's skills. Um, And C stands for child-driven. So this doesn't mean permissive parenting, anything like that, or permissive education, but it really just means that starting conversations with where a child is. That might mean um, on the positive side, they're very excited. They want to tell you something, but even something that you sense is on their mind or something they're worried about or scared about, you're really starting trying to understand their perspective on the situation before necessarily coming in and just lecturing. So 
I think those ABCs are really what I put together as um, something to really jumpstart those conversations. Well, you know, this kind of leads me to a question because sometimes I've seen this, um, even sometimes, you know, if you're going to the supermarket and you see someone, an adult talking to, let's say, a three-year-old and they're saying something to the three-year-old and I don't think the child has the cognitive capacity to understand what the parent is saying. Mm-hmm. And then you can see the parent's frustration starts to rise because mm-hmm. the child can't quite comprehend what the parent is trying to tell them. I, I wonder if you could just address that. And what do we need to know about developmental ages mm-hmm. and about sure. cognitive abilities to even understand what we're talking about in terms of conversation? Definitely. Yeah. So I think that is so important. Um, And one thing to keep in mind is just, I usually think the more concrete, the younger the child. So oftentimes I think we can talk about big ideas if you start very concrete with something the child can actually see, you know, so you wouldn't be talking about say gravity with a four-year-old, but you could talk about, oh, this one falls really fast. And this one falls less fast, you know? Oh, some, we talk, that is the word called gravity. So you can get there, you can get to big ideas but you always want to start thinking, especially however young the child is, something that they can actually see and manipulate. Um, so that's the one thing I really keep in mind. So really keeping in mind that, that tangible things that a child can touch. Exactly. And, and especially, I think with your example, it's so important that sometimes we will get it wrong, but that not to necessarily ramp it up and feel more frustrated, but just take the temperature. So maybe say something, and I've done this before. I, you know, I sometimes try, you know, I say something to my five-year-old and I realized like, I'm curious, do you understand what I'm saying? You know, and I'll see what he says. And obviously that's the power of this back and forth is that you can see, oh, wow, you have a really different understanding than I thought you did, or you don't. And just being open as an adult to not necessarily get really frustrated about the child's level, but to just start to really listen to their responses to see, you know, if you need to go up and down. So I think it's like being curious and, and also I guess it would be also watching our language that if we're using, you know, language that they don't yet comprehend. And like you're saying, checking it out, they may not have any idea about what we're talking about. Yeah. And I think, but I think also to realize that they might in a surprising way, you might be surprised positively and be like, wow, they have, you know, there's something really cool in what you said. Uh, You know? And I mean, my son actually just recently asked me like, when does the future start? Um, And it was funny because I realized it was because, um, he wanted a package that we said is coming in the future. <laughs> so he was asking when the future was, but I took it as much more philosophical. And I was like, well, I, I mean, it could start tomorrow, but it could also start in five minutes. And like, what? it's just, you know, so we started trying to lay out in paper, like here's now, and then here's after now, which, you know, so but it's cool. I think sometimes you can see really interesting. I, I, I love those conversations because yeah. Sometimes what they're asking us is a lot more concrete than what exactly. They I realized about. later I was like, "You just want the monopoly. <laughs> like, when is monopoly coming?" Yeah, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> it wasn't really about yeah, an esoteric yeah. thing about right. Exactly. Sure. <laughs> and here you got yeah, it. yeah. It's really of funny. Who knows that that little mind is being formed, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that then what what's wrong with doing something? Yeah, exactly. Because like? <laughs> my my granddaughter often surprises me. She'll use it incredibly. I mean, how do you know that vocabulary? Right. And I think it might might be because of social media. I'm not yes. certain. It's mm-hmm. definitely yeah. more expanded than when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And even television. I was surprised by some things they uh, 
yeah, listen to Blaze. Or there's like, there's various kids shows where they really talk about technical things and you'd be surprised. <laughs> I think the technology, and I think maybe we can take talk a little bit more about that after the break. You're talking about your 10-year-old daughter who is very good with technology. Yes. <laughs> and I was talking about my son when the internet first came out. Like, yes, that's oh, gosh, amazing. Talking another language. And he still to this day will go, oh, mom, I can't believe you don't know that. <laughs> I, I, I am pretty good with technology, but yes. of he's better. He ended up getting his degree in that. Oh, so. for sure. So at any event, we're going to be back in just a few moments. We're going to continue this really fascinating talk with Dr. Rebecca Rowland, and we're going to learn more about how to talk with kids because she's got a lot of goodies <laughs> up for us so that we can start strategizing and how we're going to implement this, not only with maybe our children or grandchildren or kids we know in the neighborhood, or if you're a teacher, kids that you are caring for, or I think your book is for really all of the world. So, um, and that name of that book, I'm going to say it again, the <laughs> art of talking to children. All right. We will be, we'll be back in just a few minutes and we will continue our conversation. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma informed and resiliency focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller-Karis book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine Miller-Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller-Karis. 
To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here talking to Rebecca Rowland. She's written the most wonderful book that has been published in many languages called The Art of Talking to Children. And so we uh, were talking at the break about how I really wanted to hear more about the neuroscience behind the work that she's doing and uh, the conversations with children and how to build resilience. So, um, Rebecca, could you tell us a little bit more about the neuroscience behind, you know, these conversations that we can facilitate with kids? Definitely. Yeah. So as part of my book, it was, I really undertook a journey of research. So I talked with and met with many experts in neuroscience and linguistics, psychology, and so on, um, just because I was so fascinated to learn this myself. Um, and one thing I found, I met with Rachel Romeo at MIT, and she and her lab have done some fascinating research on the neuroscience of conversations, especially. Um, and something she did actually was she recently did an intervention study where it was a nine week study where she actually found that you can enhance the number of conversational turns with children. Um, so she did a study with parents and children. You can enhance these turns so you can have more back and forth just by teaching about it. And that by doing so, it, there's a link to children's enhanced language skills, but even their activation of their, the language part of their brain and the social part of their brain. Um, so really the fact that conversation isn't just a linguistic experience, but it's also a social experience. So children are actually learning how to kind of be in relationship in conversation, even as they're learning what we think of as more, you know, language skills, like vocabulary and things. So when you talk about activation, did she actually peek inside and do oh, Yeah, there was actually like fMRI studies and yeah, various studies that they've done um, to notice sort of what's activating at, you know, when, at what period. So yeah, so it was actually a neuroscientific study as well as an intervention study. So when she actually taught um, adults how to do this, um, which I thought was really fascinating because we don't always think about, you know, are we able to make changes in these kind of areas, uh, which she found that we were. So that just actually came out last year. So it was really, really recent. So, and I'd certainly like to read that. So tell her name is, I love her name. Oh yeah, Rachel Romeo, R-O-M-E-O. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you were also mentioning that in the Harvard labs that there may be, could you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think we also know that having a trusted adult. Yes, yes. So I would really point listeners to that center because it's great, the Center for the Developing Child at Harvard. And Jack Shonkoff, who's a pediatrician, is one of the main researchers there. And they do just really wonderful work. Um, and this, they call it serve and return conversations, where it's really this idea that having these back and forth conversations is building the brain, but is also building trust, building relationships at the same time. Um, and that's something I talk in my book about um, what I call a double promise, because um, we think about it's happening in the moment. So you're sort of enjoying each other in the moment. And then you're also building the skills and resiliency over time. So there's kind of these two things happening simultaneously, which I think is just incredible. Well, and, and as you talk about, I love that the double promise is that, Rebecca, but it does con- concern me about technology when you say that. <laughs> because if we know to develop healthy brains that this conversation needs to happen, if we have children that are so fixated on that device that's so addicting, I, you know, as we know, yeah. I mean, I, again, I know we talked about it earlier, but I'm just wondering, are they looking, 
at this Harvard lab, for example, mm-hmm. what's happening with the brains of kids that are just so fixated on that and not in the conversation. Yes. I mean, I think, uh, so I definitely have read a lot of research about this as well. And I do think that the unfortunate thing is that children who are already at risk socially, um, being more on social media, being more uh, vulnerable, you know, online makes them even more at risk. So I think that we also want, we want to be particularly concerned. Um, For example, they found that, you know, young teenage girls who are already concerned about body image or concerned about um, how well they're liked, um, they do a lot more social comparisons for example, using Instagram and so on, which causes them to feel even worse about themselves. So there is this kind of cycle uh, where, you know, we're seeing that children are getting more concerned, um, more insecure by being more on social media, if they were, especially if they were already vulnerable to it. Um, So I think we want to be especially careful for me, not just technology writ large, but what are kids using technology for? Um, So you know, one example for me is um, we've started playing as a family, the New York Times spelling bee, which is what you, you know, you try to all find these words and a little spelling bee. So now we have like a, a morning conversation about these different words. And, you know, that's one example of we're using technology, we're on the phones, but it's not the same thing as somebody scrolling through TikTok, looking at various, you know, various it's videos. It's a collaboration. That, exactly. That also stimulates conversation. Exactly. So if the, if I, I really think about, well, is there more conversation and connection happening as a result of this technology use or is there more disconnection? So I really think about that in a more nuanced way than just technology is good or technology is bad. It's really what are we using that technology for? Oh, that is so important. What are we using the technology for? I haven't heard anybody say that before <laughs> because I think people are concerned about the social media. But if you do something collaboratively, like, you know, that word uh, scramble game, then you're, you're going to be conversing and you're going to be doing the back and forth that you say is so important. Exactly. Exactly. So I think, you know, we're saying, oh, well, did you get did you get this word? No, I already did that. Oh, okay. What about this? You know, and so, yes, we're using a screen, but it's a jump start to conversation. So rather than saying in the morning, oh, you know, I'm tired. What are you at? You, you know, we're having a different kind of conversation. So well, it can be kind of fun. Like a little and it's, it's very fun. It's very fun. Although it can end in tears, unfortunately, once in a while. But here's uh, <laughs> the part of life too. Hopefully not. Yeah. It's a borderline. It's always the border. <laughs> come back to teenagers. Cause I mean, I, we're so concerned about teenagers right now. You, we know that the depression rates in teenagers is very high suicide rates are very high. Um, So when a teenager is fixated, like you said, young, young uh, teenage girls, what are some ways that parents can start this back and forth conversation with them? Uh, Can you give us some examples, some tools that I'm sure many people are going, Oh, what do I do with this? Yes, for sure. And I think one thing that I really like to emphasize from the beginning as sort of a foundation is if it's at all possible to help engage your child as a collaborator with you in thinking about how technology is making them feel, how they're using it and what they're, you know, what they're doing afterwards, how their relationships are. So rather than saying, well, I'm going to be the person who sets the rules, I'm going to ban your phone from you and sort of setting up a antagonistic relationship. If you can help your child, even with the smallest things as a start. So things like, well, let's think about, you know, let's just try something. How are you, how do you feel after you've been on that app for 20 minutes? You know, how much do you think if you say, well, I need to be on it because my friends are on it, something like that. Well, how much do you think you quote unquote need to be on it before it's enough? Can you help set your timer for yourself and say, well, that's what I'm going to do. 
and then I'm going to do something else. Can we help each other be on our, you know, our sort of use social media only as much as we feel like it's benefiting us and be a little bit self-critical about it? So, and do it for yourself too. I mean, I think a lot of adults, you know, we we do use social media maybe more than we might need to also. Um, and so my, my granddaughter recently, we couldn't, no, nobody could find their phones. She had stuck into and got everybody's phones and she hid them from us. Oh no. And I thought that was brilliant on her That's part. That's so funny. Yes. Me, I think that was part of like, how can we communicate with right, her? Right. Exactly. On our technology. Right. I think she was saying that. Like, yeah, yeah. That's what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, right. well, yeah. We got to get rid of our technology yeah. if this exactly. is what's going on, right? Because yeah. we could oh, yeah. time. Yeah. And actually, I'd like to um, to point there is a really fascinating research I read, which was, and sad, um, which was with younger children, but saying that children, especially, they sort of they use, they interact with you less um, as an adult if you're on your phone, but especially if it's a habitual thing for the adult. So, meaning as if, the child recognizes that this is just something you do. You're not going to engage with them. So they don't even try. So they found that children were actually making less, yeah, less bids for attention. Yeah. So it's almost as if not, if, okay, let, I'm going to check the weather quickly, but no, if you're, if they know you're habitually on your phone, when they're habitually playing, they start to make fewer and fewer attempts to communicate because it's just, you know, why should I try? Um, oh my gosh. I want everyone to hear that. Yeah. So if they see you on your phone a lot, when you're with them, then it's almost like they're saying, I guess they're not interested in me. Right. Or it's they, like, I don't, why do I need to try? Cause they don't really want to talk. So, so I try less. So then sometimes when people say, well, they're just playing over there, they're not, they don't even want to talk. Well, it's like, well, yes, maybe, but maybe it's also because we're always on the phones. They know not to look, they know not to ask at this point. Uh, so that's when I think something should probably change. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think so. But other and there are there any other things with teenagers? Any other things that you've learned? Yes, definitely. So I think um, especially this idea of isolation. I think teenagers think they're connecting um, through the kind of phone use and social media use, but there there's so much research showing that um, sadly that even if you put something neutral, like you start with a neutral feed on Instagram, it very quickly goes to something more and more negative and extreme. So children are being exposed to, to more and more extreme images, whether it's things about eating disorders, things about others who are, you know, more beautiful, that kind of thing, very, very early, even if they're not posting that kind of content. So I think that's something we want to be really concerned about is just what are teenagers being exposed to in their feeds, even if they're not necessarily putting it out there. Um, because uh, aren't there algorithms too that, that exactly and that yeah. can be um, not good for our children? Yeah. So they tend to go more and more towards one extreme or the other, um, you know, just because that's what gets clicks and things like that. So it can be really disturbing and we don't always know, obviously, what, you know, what kids are going through or scrolling through. So I think that's why the conversation is so important um, because we do want to help kids raise their self-awareness so they can start to monitor their own feelings and emotions and not to feel as if we're the ones banning or not banning uh, because then they just do more sneaking of phones and things like that. So it's not as useful. So and this kind of, we've kind of touched upon this a little bit, but I think it deserves a deeper dive. Are there common misconceptions about talking with children? If so, what are some key ones and how can we bust the myth? Yes, definitely. So I think, um, one thing is this idea that um, we do just want to get more out of kids. So it's like, how can we ask more questions? More questions will mean they talk more. And then why won't they talk more? You know, so 
I think we can get very triggered when kids don't want to talk. And it feels as if, well, why won't they talk to me? There's a bigger problem. I think to stay relaxed in those moments and to realize that silence and kind of active listening can be as important as questions or talking. Um, I've often found that some of the best conversations come after I'm purposefully silent after picking my children up from school. So rather than how was your day? What did you do? You know, those are fine. Those are, you know, moments of connection in themselves. But I found that if I do want, you know, to hear more about their day, sometimes actually just being silent and waiting for them to come up with what whatever's on their mind can be a really important jumpstart. And I think that's true for a lot of other times as well. So the, Rebecca, when you say that too, from what, based on your previous comments, that means silence, not silence being on your social media. Exactly. Yes. Just so you just, have to move that aside. Yeah. It's just to move that like, aside. Um, yeah, have some, you know, uh, I don't know, 15 minutes an hour. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I mean, even just to, yeah, to do something even meditative together or something like not necessarily just sit in silence, but, you know, do some cooking, do some, you know, let's play some cards, let's do whatever kind of ritual is kind of, um, you know, together that sort of, you you might be quiet together, but doing something. Oftentimes that's when conversations can bubble up. Yeah, I've noticed that with my granddaughter where I, I like to plant flowers and she likes to do it with me. And she'll talk to me then about things mm-hmm. that I didn't know was, were going on. Mm-hmm. But it's like you're doing something else, but that causes that back and flow conversation that you're saying exactly. is important. Exactly. And sometimes I find that, you know, even sitting in the car with someone, that, even you're not necessarily facing each other. Sometimes that can be easier to start harder conversations because it feels as if, okay, I'm not in your face. You know, we're sort of doing our own thing visually, but uh, you can sometimes talk a little bit easier. Well, and I've heard some parents tell me that they have uh, no talking, uh, on, no using media in the phone, um, mm-hmm. in the car rather. In the car. Because mm-hmm. there are conversations that can be had in the car that sometimes it's kind of like going into the hot tub with my, with my mm-hmm. son, that there can be special moments of conversation because it can be mixed with silence. Exactly. Conversation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think there's long stretches of silence and something can come up. And even talking, when I said talking about things that are concrete, you can talk about what you're seeing outside. So always it's important if we're having especially difficult conversations, you know, to have these moments of lightness to say, well, let's, oh, let's look at this or let's, you know, which way should we go? Or, you know, so I think those kinds of things to break up sometimes difficult conversations can be really important too. Well, it's, it seems like when you're talking, you're I was talking about what I often term as invitational language. Mm-hmm. You are, you're inviting them to have yes. a conversation with you. And that's different than saying, tell me about what happened in school right. today. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes I do even have kind of things that, you know, where I'll say, oh, this really funny thing happened to me today. And I'm not, I'm not sort of planning it, but you know, you think, oh, this funny thing. And oftentimes that brings up, well, this funny thing happened to me, you know, so kids do want to engage often if they're given that invitation for sure. Yes. I, get, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about all these things where I might say to Madison, you're not going to believe what Papa Jim did today. Yeah, exactly. Playful thing that we do together, right? That's really funny. So, these kind of conversations that you can have. So I'm really, I'm really getting the sense too. It's also um, as the parent or, or grandparent or the caregiver of children is also being aware of yourself. That's really yes. comes through in our conversation. Definitely. I think too that, yeah, to recognize especially kind of what's triggering for us, what's, when are we able to have some difficult or, you know, some of our best conversations. And especially sometimes I think kids want to have conversations when we don't necessarily want to have them or we don't not ready for them. Um, And I, I talk in my book too, about this idea of bookmarking conversations. So meaning that, you know, it's fine to say, 
Well, I think we should talk about that, but I don't feel ready to talk about that right this second. You know, so why don't we wait? And then I usually try to set some kind of time or put it on a schedule somewhere. So say like, I, I think I'll be ready later tonight. Can we talk about that at bedtime? Or So then that way you're saying to your child or to what, you know, the child you're with, this is important. I do, I value what you're asking me. I value this idea, but I just right now emotionally, like this is not the time for me or this is, we don't have the time for this. Um, So that bookmarking is really making the time, but in a way that's sort of going to be the best for both of you. So I think that is so important. So creating language within your family about bookmarks was important, but there's also modeling that that sometimes we're not our, in our best selves to mm-hmm. be able to have a conversation, yeah. but their conversation is important to you, but not at this moment in time. Exactly. And I think same goes for apologizing. So I really emphasize how important it is to model apologizing, to have that be part of the family where it's okay to apologize. And I think that can make things feel easier. You know, you can say something that you feel is wrong or not the way you want it, if you can apologize. Well, so there's also some topics that, you know, if you could just share a little bit more with us about the recent, um, the shootings in Uvalde where the, mm-hmm. all the children died and two teachers died. Yeah. Um, the other thing about that is that, you know, I, I was, I actually wrote a psychology blog, um, Psychology Day about it, was that um, in 2020, the last time they have the statistics that were available to me, there were over 4,000 children under the age of 18, 18 and under, who had died from gun violence. Um, And so, yes, the the mass shootings are horrible, but there's children dying every single day in different parts of our neighborhoods from gun violence. Yes. Um, So how do we talk to kids about this? Definitely. Yes. And I actually have written about this as well, because I think that it is so important. And especially today, I think we can't avoid it. I mean, we we don't want to avoid it. And I think um, it's a sad reality of our lives and of our children's lives. And one thing I think that's so important to keep in mind is just to help kids realize that we are trying our best to keep them safe, that what our schools are trying their best to keep them safe. But I think always finding that balance of um, compassion for all of the people that have been affected and also, well, how do we feel okay and safe enough in our own lives? Um, And so for me, what I've really found important is to emphasize um, three parts of empathy. So not just empathizing sort of and feeling into other people's perspective, but also what can we do? So I really think that in terms of talking with children about violence, it's very important, at least from my perspective, to take an action oriented um, you know, viewpoint to say, we're not just going to sit here passively. Yes, this is happening. Yes, you probably have seen these images. And we'll think about both in our own lives and homes, but even at the broader political spectrum, what can we actually do about this? So what can I do as an adult? Um, You know, how can I help to make this so it doesn't seem as scary as much of a reality? So I, I do think that validating the fact that children are scared and while recognizing that we're here for them, that we want to hear their concerns and that we're doing our best to keep them safe. I think all of those are critically important. But I also think we need to take the other step of saying, well, we are trying to take action here because we don't think this is the kind of society we want you to grow up in. You know, we do want to make changes. And I think to have children hear that the adults in their lives want things to be different um, is also really important for kids. So you're talking really about empowering them to think about how you can take action. Maybe it would be writing to your legislator and saying, I do not want guns coming into my school, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, to say that, 
we, we agree this is not a good situation. <laughs> you know, this shouldn't be happening to anyone ever. You know, and what can we do at a small scale, even to make the smallest difference to feel as if we can start to move towards a different society? So I think that is really important to empower kids. And, and so I'm also getting a clear message from you. It's not avoiding the subjects. Yes, it's- I think that that's so important. I think that kids are, of course, naturally scared. And I think that to feel as if we can share our own upsetness with them, to share, to hear from them, I think to hear and just to be with them, with their feelings and to validate them, I think is so important because it's true that it's scary to hear that. And I think to tell kids that it's not scary is to do them a disservice. Well, I cannot believe our time today has slipped by like quicksand. It's been yes. such a really fabulous conversation. Yes, thank um, you. And I'm hoping that maybe you'll come back again and, and we can continue this conversation. Um, but is, are there is any parting thought, one parting thought? Yeah, sure. So I would say that um, if the idea of meaningful talk with kids, if that feels big or, you know, feels like a, you know, big undertaking, I would say absolutely it doesn't have to be. You can take five minutes a day, you know, a couple times a day, just start by sitting with your child, doing something you know, quiet and seeing what happens, just really starting to hear from them. What is it that's on your mind today? You don't have to say that, but just to really get that sense from them. And I think you might be really surprised um, the richness that your conversations take. Well, I want to remind all of our listeners that your book is available on Amazon and I'm sure other places. It is The Art of Talking to Children by Rebecca Rowland please go and buy it and read it. And uh, we will have her come back again. Rebecca, thank you so much for spending this time with us. And I think this is another example. You often hear me say what else is true. What else is true if we're worried about talking to our children? We have just heard some really great examples of what we can do, even if it's five minutes twice a day to try to engage in that back and forth conversation that clearly is so important to us. So, Rebecca, again, thank you so much. And in my listeners, until we meet again, um, this is Elaine Miller-Karis signing off for Resiliency Within. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within, with host Elaine Miller-Karras, is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.